0: On how to enter the rest that God gives, here's Pastor Ed Ray.
1: God does not force rest on us. We must surrender to it, surrender to Him, and then the rest comes. We need to grab hold of it, grasp it, seize it. It's active faith. I am saved. I know it. It's not passive believing. Well, maybe. No, it's, I own it.
0: I all now build with hands And in this place Gotta dwell with man Sick be And the crippled stand Singing hallelujah My kingdom built With the blood of my son Selfless sacrifice For everyone Faith, hope, love And harmony I say let this world Know me by your love Rest is so much more Than nap time As good as they are But this rest we're speaking of today on Grow in Grace is a picture of something wonderful that God has for every believer. In Hebrews chapter 4, we're given a promise of rest and we're told how to access it and what keeps us from it. It's very encouraging and instructive. Pastor Ed Ray will get us started by reading this insightful scripture.
1: Chapter 4, verse 10. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall after the same example of disobedience or literally unbelief. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit. And of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us, therefore, come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 117 years ago, Frank Baum published a children's story called The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, and some have called it the most significant children's book written in America because it changed the direction. 1956, when it finally became part of the the movie world, it had a billion viewers. At that time, the largest audience that any movie from Hollywood had ever garnered together. The reason I bring up a children's story in the middle of the book of Hebrews is because it seems to me many Christians, and perhaps most people in the world, view God more like Oz than we do the verses that we just read, that God's throne is one of grace and that we should come boldly to it. So the tin man quaking may be you struggling with that idea of approaching a God who's so perfect and so holy and knows everything that he's reading my mind and my heart and I'm too embarrassed to even think about talking to him. Hopefully we'll break through some of that here. So this concept of scripture suggesting something much different of our God, Father in heaven, and his son. Boldness and confidence are the words that are translated here. Now, there's an incredible offer and privilege in that, and we want to try and tune our thinking to fit what God is saying here. First of all, if you're just joining this, this book, Hebrews, is a very difficult book to read through because it was written to a culture that most of us don't have much background in. This is a a letter written to a group of Jews in the first century who had received Jesus Christ as their Messiah. So it's a decidedly Hebrew group that they're writing to, but they're under persecution after they received Jesus. It is 68 AD. Nero is on the throne. Persecution from the Roman Empire is just beginning, and it would escalate to the point where Nero was lashing Christians to poles and burning them with hot tar as candles, as a way to light his gardens. That's a historic fact. So these Jews who had become Christians quickly realized that if they just went back to being Jews, they wouldn't have any of that pressure on them because the Jews themselves were not being persecuted. And so the writer of Hebrews is writing to encourage them, to strengthen them, that they would stand fast. And his logic has been that Jesus is better than anything they'd ever seen in the Old Testament, better than the prophets, that he was better than all the high priests and the various things that had come down through the law, better than Moses. So here he's talking to them about the high priest Jesus and that he has come through all the heavens, and he's waiting for them to come to him. Again, just trying to build them up. So, put yourself in that place. You're trying to grasp this concept of believing is enough, that there's no animals to be sacrificed anymore. Yes, there was still a temple in Jerusalem at this time for a couple of more years before Titus would destroy it, but Judaism would never be the same because the old covenant had passed away, and here's a new one, all right? So, God wants us to see the importance of Scripture in these verses and how clearly it points us to Him. This section breaks up into three parts, 10 through 13. Those verses talk about the Bible, Scripture, as being a sword, And then Jesus as the high priest, is the ultimate high priest once and for all. Don't need a high priest anymore, 14 and 15. And then this invitation of mercy and grace available to anyone who would humble themselves before God. In verse 16. So let's jump in and see what God might say to us about the Wizard of Oz. No, I mean about God. God who is God in heaven. For he, or she who has entered his rest, God's rest, has himself or their selves also ceased from his works or her works as God did from his. So the subject we looked at last time was rest, which is kind of a foreign word to most of us. But the concept here scripturally is different than what we think about a good night's sleep or something like that. Rest here is a a metaphor, a figure of speech, a picture, an illustration for salvation. To have a permanent relationship with God that will lead into eternity is it's a restful salvation. When you understand that it is available not because of how good you are or how many little old ladies you help walk across the street or whatever good works you might try and do to earn heaven, in spite of that God gives it freely. So, cease from his work is the key phrase to this section. That in fact, cease from working your way to heaven. Trying to please God with giving enough money, going to church enough, helping enough people, doing enough good works to earn God's forgiveness. You can't do it. That's the bottom line. And so, if we rest in what Jesus has done, if we're willing to accept, what Jesus Christ has already done for us, will be just like God who rested from his works. Now that's a picture back to Genesis chapter two, verse two, when on the seventh day, God finished all that he had started, and it says he rested. And there was uh, no mention of evening and morning, the seventh day, meaning it still continues to this day. Said another way, God already knew what needed to be done, and he did it from before the foundations of the earth. Said another way, the Lamb of God was sacrificed from before the earth was even made. So God's already planned it all out, and because he said it's going to happen, you can bet the farm on it. It's going to happen. And so he was able to rest Comfortably knowing it was already done. That's a picture. We're supposed to do the same thing of not relying on anything else I have to do but relying on what God does. That doesn't mean I don't do anything. It means I am saved. I recognize that. And because I am grateful, because I want to be part of what God is doing, I join in. He allows me to join in the work that he's doing. Not to earn heaven. I'm already going. I hope most of you know that about yourself, too. It's not arrogance. It's not boasting. It's because of what Jesus did. And I believe, important word, I have faith in I am trusting it. I am relying on what God has done. Now, for most of you, you understand that completely. But if you're here for the first time, you're going, what? Hang in there. It will make sense as we work along, hopefully, a little bit better for you. Verse 11, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, that's kind of ironic, rest, but you have to be diligent to do it, lest anyone fall, according to the same example of disobedience or literally unbelief. What's he talking about? Hebrew writer, to Hebrews, he's saying to them in the first century, you're just like those in the 14th century B.C., Your relatives who refused to believe God when they were stuck on Mount Sinai, going round and around in the Exodus, they refused to believe that God would take care of them if they went into the promised land and they rested. So it kind of leaves a lot out. But that's the metaphor, the picture, the figure of speech that he's using here. Be diligent to enter. Another translation says be careful to Be eager to enter. If we are not diligent to enter the rest, the results can be a disaster. That's what it's saying. God does not force rest on us. We must surrender to it, surrender to Him, and then the rest comes. We need to grab hold of it, grasp it, seize it. That's what it's saying here. It's active faith. I am saved. I know it. It's not passive believing well, maybe. No, it's, I own it. The same example, according to the same example of disobedience, of unbelief, that when God said, I want you guys to go in the land, go in and take it, go into the promised land, and they locked up. This unbelief was a refusal to believe what God said was true. So, this whole thing hinges on having faith that God only speaks the truth, even though I can't see it with my eyes.
0: Pastor Ed Ray is in Hebrews chapter 4 today on Growing Grace. We continue with more of the necessity of faith and the problem of unbelief. Backing up a bit into chapter 3 in verse 19, once again,
1: here's Pastor Ed. Here's the way it's said in chapter three of Hebrews. So we see that they could not enter in, into the promised land, because of unbelief. Why didn't they believe? Verse two of this chapter, four, two. But the word which they heard didn't profit them, not being mixed with faith in those that heard it. God's words, they refused to believe. That's how they got in trouble the illustration is for these in the first century and for me and for you today. God said it, 66 books of the Bible, 44, or 45 authors. It's gone through a couple thousand years since Jesus came and about 2,000 years before Jesus came, and God has carefully preserved it. If you believe it, then you embrace it and you are at rest with your salvation. I'll keep saying it different ways, trying to get through that one. Verse 12. So, he said, they heard God's word, but they didn't believe it. That's why he says in verse 12, for the word of God, what God said, in this case, now written down, the Bible for you and I, is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, Seen even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the hearts. Now, this verse can hit you one of two ways. You say, oh, good, God already knows everything. He understands me completely and go, oh, no. God's looking at my heart, but it's black, just like the rest of us in this room, okay? Just embrace it. It is your pirate's heart but you're not much different than the person across the room. If you think you're different and so much better, then please stay for the third service. You probably need to hear it again. Okay, the Word of God is living. Literally says full of living power. The Bible is not a collection of dusty old musty stories from centuries ago. It is much, much more. It has within it inherent life. What? God built it into its DNA. It is a foundational truth about the Scripture, that it is alive because the Holy Spirit is in it, and it is animated. That's the Word. You are alive, and we know you're alive because you walked in here. And if you don't walk out, then <laughs> we, we may have to check your pulse. So, the Word of God is living. He is a living God, he used words that have power within them, he's gonna say here in just a moment. Not dead or irrelevant, God's word is alive. It vibrates with power. It is a living, present active of parsable. That's more information than you need, but the point is that it will remain that way for eternity. It is now, it was in the past, and it will continue. The Bible is continuously alive then, and it is now. And it will be forever. The word powerful you already know in the Greek language, energize. Exactly the same word. That word has come from Greek over into English. When it says it's a powerful word, it means it's energized, it has the inference of being productive. It does what it was intended, what it was designed to do, it impacts you. So, what this is saying, because faith comes by hearing, and you're hearing God's Word in this place, you're reading it on the screens behind me, that it's impacting your life, even right now. It doesn't mean that you feel it right away, or you sense it completely right now, but it is changing you. Sometimes with me, I don't get it when I first hear it, but the next day, or I'll wake up in the morning and go, oh my goodness, that's what that's saying. It will impact your life. That's God's promise, that it is able to bring life, more life, into you. That's a good thing. So, he brings activity where there was inactivity in the past. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It doesn't hit us the way it did them, because they're living in the first century, and the Roman Empire has developed a weapon that changed the world. And it's a broadsword, a short sword, that the Roman legionnaires carried. 18 to 20 inches long. And the revolution was that you didn't have this big, unwieldy five- or six-foot-long sword. You'd get up close and personal in hand-to-hand combat. And the blade was sharp on both ends, both sides, I should have said. We have, you know, steak knives at home or something that are sharp on one edge. This is a short, broadsword, and it's sharp all the way along both edges. And it was new technology. But the sharpest instrument in the ancient world was the Roman sword. So he writes a two-edged sword, sharper. The Bible, God's Word, is sharper than a two-edged sword. Interesting, huh? Martin Luther was asked how the Reformation got started, what he did. He said... I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's Word. Otherwise, I did nothing. The Word of God so greatly weakened the church, at that time a political body, that never a prince or emperor inflicted such damage on it. I did nothing. The Word did it all. Luther understood that the Word had life. Piercing even to the division of soul and spirit. This is a controversial verse. No one seems to understand for sure what it means. The two words says it all to me. The word soul, you know from an uh, English language. In Greek, it's psyche. So you have a psyche and you have a pneuma, the other word, a spirit, Okay, so psyche or psychology is my soul. It's the center of my thought process, my logic, my comprehension, my will, my decision-making abilities. My volition is centered in my heart, the Jews would say. My soul, the Greeks would say. Psychology, the study of the human soul. This word is able to delineate, able to separate, able to cut into this very narrow gap between soul, psyche, and spirit, pneuma. We say he's got a collapse along a pneumothorax. He's got pneumonia. You have a pneumatic tool driven by air, by breath, same word for spirit. So this word of God is able to discern something that you and I can't even discern completely. You did not have a spirit when you were born. Well, I think I did. No, you had, a, you had a psyche. You had a soul, and you had a body, physical, of which all of us do. But your spirit was dead. Paul said, you were dead in your trespasses and said, Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. You have to be born of water, and you must be born of the Spirit. Now, Nicodemus was an expert in the Old Testament. He was the teacher of the Jews at that time, the most important teacher in Judaism. But he didn't understand it. And Jesus said, you have to be born. How is it that you, you can't understand these things? So, you didn't have a Spirit. I didn't have a Spirit. But then I was born anew, born afresh, born of the Spirit, converted by the Holy Spirit, however you want to say it, depending on your denominational background. We get to the same point. Somebody said to me, well, I'm a Christian, but I'm not a born-again Christian. No, you are born again. No, no, that's a certain denomination. No, no, you have to be born into the kingdom of God. Reborn into the kingdom of God. You must be born again. That sounds familiar, yeah, yeah, (laughs) Jesus said it. Maybe you struggle with the word, but not the concept. The concept is your spirit was dead, and then God gave you a live spirit. But it's difficult to tell the difference between a soul and a spirit, why? Because our heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. I didn't say that, God said that. Somebody had a really insulted look on their face. Come here long enough, you'll get insulted often. become comfortable with the fact that we make a lot of mistakes. Not so that we can continue to make those mistakes, but you just spend a lot of time thanking God for showing you. God's Word changes us. It trims us. That's the way Jesus said it. John fifteen two. Every branch in me, in Jesus, that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So God's Word is pruning those of us who know Him. It's pruning us, dead wood, that's not producing any fruit, not bringing about any new life in other people. The Bible's piercing quality is the source of all that. So it catches us unexpectedly.
0: Pastor Ed Ray concluding today's Grow in Grace, illustrating the power of the Word of God. Be encouraged to boldly proclaim the word, trusting it will do what's needed in the heart of the hearer. You can listen to this program again on our website at thepackinghouse.org. We can also send you a CD copy. For this and other Christ-centered resources, go online to thepackinghouse.org or call 844-77-GRACE. That's toll-free, 844-77-GRACE. At Grow in Grace, we're committed to delivering God's Word from Genesis to Revelation so that nothing is left out. We're grateful to the Lord when we hear of men and women that are growing in grace as a result of listening. And if that's happening in your life, would you please let us know? As this study of Hebrews continues, we want to hear from you. Email us today at packinghouseradio at aol.com. And that's PackinghouseRadio at AOL.com. And we'd also very much appreciate your financial support. Lives are being impacted, people are growing in grace, and your gifts help to make this possible. When you give today, you're invited to request a copy of Elizabeth Elliot's book Through Gates of Splendor. In January of nineteen fifty-six, five missionaries gave their lives in the jungles of Ecuador and made the headlines around the world. You'll be encouraged and blessed as you read this compelling and inspirational true story. Allow it to spark a passion in your life to get the gospel of Jesus out to those who are without Christ. It's yours for a gift of any amount, so call us right now at 844-77-GRACE. We'll pick up where we left off in Hebrews next time. So join us as we grow in grace with Pastor Ed. This program is listener supported and brought to you by the House Christian Fellowship in Redlands. Zion now with hands and in this place gotta dwell with man sick Ill, and the crippled stand singing hallelujah my kingdom built with the blood of my son selfless sacrifice for everyone faith, hope, love and harmony Let this world know me by your love